Hello and welcome to A Moon State of Crypto Brainstorm, where we come together once a week to discuss the latest trends and analysis in the crypto world. All opinions expressed by A Moon staff or guests of the podcast are solely their own opinions. This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute any form of investment advice. This podcast is powered by Blockworks Group, the only events and podcast production company I trust. For access to the premier digital asset conferences and in-depth podcast content, visit them at blockworksgroup.io. I promise you will not be disappointed. Welcome to this episode of the Moon State of Crypto podcast. While still in its early stages, the crypto asset market has continued to develop and professionalize since the inception of Bitcoin in 2009. For many with experiences in capital markets, many aspects of the crypto market may look familiar to the market microstructure of traditional finance. Nevertheless, there's still a range of difference between how crypto markets operate and how price discovery works when compared to the markets for other assets. Today, we have a special guest, Noel Atchison, head of research for Coindesk, who will discuss how crypto's market microstructure is different from that of other assets. This is a topic that several members of the Moon team are especially interested in. And so for this episode, we have as guests, Amun's co-founder and chief product officer, Ophelia Snyder, and our head of ETPs, Laurent. I'm Lanray and a researcher at Amun. We think this episode is going to be especially interesting. And so with that being said, Ophelia, could you introduce the topic for today? So as Lanray mentioned, the, the topic for today is looking at crypto market microstructures and how we think about trading infrastructure and price discovery um, in this world and how that's similar and different to the traditional markets. And so I think at a base level, one of the things that, you know, sort of important to realize is that not everyone approaches trading in this market the same way. And that sort of goes without saying, but it's a combination of on exchange trading, um, OTCs, so dealing directly with um, liquidity providers and larger market makers and derivatives products. And the derivatives products include things like BitMEX, um, FTX, uh, e- things like our ETPs and other um, sort of products built on top of traditional crypto infrastructure that allow you to get get that market exposure and trade those assets without necessarily engaging with phys- the physical crypto assets. And the, from a markets infrastructure perspective, um, there are obviously quite a few corollaries um, to the traditional world, especially around how uh, people choose to connect to these systems and how responsive they are and how able they are to handle things like large order flows um, and what that means in terms of strategies like high-frequency trading um, and strategies such as uh, arbitrage strategies across exchanges, which we've talked about quite a bit in the past as being potentially highly profitable, especially across wide geographies. Um, there, there are obviously links to things we've seen in the traditional markets um, around high-frequency trading, sort of most notably some of the stuff you have read in like Flash Boys um, about how markets infrastructure has evolved to really focus on being extremely fast, down to nanoseconds are sort of critical in um, traditional infrastructure. In crypto-related infrastructure, that typically hasn't been the case, and it's been more focused on web-based um, applications, which have different types of latency associated with them um, and don't really meet the same sort of level of like ability to cycle through orders, um, which is why you can see things like um, rejected orders when order books get too large, especially on things like BitMEX. Um, other sort of elements that we think about is from a commodities markets perspective, um, markets infrastructure 
And price discovery can be very different. So things like the London Gold Fix and the concept of um, fixing a decided price for a commodity on any given day um, versus sort of the 24-7 trading environment um, versus the ability to actually aggregate data across multiple exchanges, across multiple OTC desks, and how much of that order flow is actually one, real, and two, visible to the market, and three, um, not tied up in derivative products where you don't get that same level of price discovery. Um, the derivative products are typically tied to some sort of settlement cycle um, and some sort of indexing. Um, so for example, you know, BitMEX has a list of exchanges that they use to create an index to determine what the price of crypto is and therefore what the price of settlement for any given contract is. Um, and so there are very wide implications around how this exchange infrastructure works, how liquidity on these exchanges and in OTC desks and in dark pools of liquidity work, um, and what that means in terms of how transparent really is this market, and also how reliable is the infrastructure we've built and whether or not it actually holds up to some of the demands of traditional infrastructure around liquidity provision, and and whether or not, honestly, any of these things is really a positive uh, for either crypto or traditional markets. Uh, So with that being said, um, Noelle, it would be great if you could give us a little bit of context about yourself and your background, um, and then we can sort of dive in. Thanks, Ophelia. Hi, and really great great to be here. What you were saying is is fascinating. Markets themselves are such a complex part of finance, the economy, and society as a whole. And it's not just the microstructure that you referred to. It's not just how the crypto markets work, how markets work in general. It's the what even are they for and what the whole idea of consensus around value. I mean, if we're not careful, this could end up being a philosophy podcast. But anyway, you asked about how I got involved in this. I... I come from finance. I come from the other side of the chasm, as they like to say. I left that to set up one of the uh, one of the first e-commerce companies here in Spain back in the year two thousand, which is dinosaur days compared to most uh, compared to in the in the internet sector. Certainly, I sold that in twenty thirteen, and then I decided to spend some time figuring out what had been going on in the world in my absence. And I'm interested in finance, interested in technology, so I did some reading, and I kept hearing about this thing called Bitcoin. And since I hate not understanding things, I I sat down. And looked it up on, on I went to hit Google and I ended up watching a video. I think it was on Khan Academy. Really good video, by the way. They do a great job. I got goosebumps as soon as I figured out that it meant have, being able to make payments without asking for permission. I mean, uh, I grew up in Zambia, and so the whole idea of banking infrastructure was something that I care a lot about, and being able to have access to payments without needing to be part of a rather limited structure is, again, very exciting. But anyway, that's a fairly long-winded answer to your question. I joined Coindesk in 2016, and since then I have been focusing on trying to explain this incredibly complex complicated and fascinating a different sector to traditional investors, try to put the evolution of crypto markets into context that traditional markets people can understand. And that gives you a deeper appreciation. You guys know this too, because you all come from traditional finance as well. It gives you a deeper appreciation for just how unique, not only this asset class, but also the market that's springing up around it is. Um, I I couldn't agree with you more. I think uh, one of the things that I'm particularly interested in, obviously, when we think about this sector and 
this, um, spe- specifically markets infrastructure. And, um, you know, I, I come out of it, I think basically everyone on this call, with the exception of Henry, comes out of a more traditional either banking or kept markets function. This idea of actually things like open liquidity. I mean, one of the things that I find fascinating from a markets infrastructure perspective, maybe we can start the conversation here. When you think about high frequency trading in traditional markets, you're talking about millions, tens of millions of dollars of investment to create microsecond improvements in connectivity to exchanges. Most exchanges in the crypto world, however, are based on mm-hmm. like web-based, which means there's no way they could actually support that kind of reduced latency in the first place. Um, and in large part, that actually makes it more democratic, right? It, it's this idea of being able to trade. And that's how crypto emerged. I mean, we also have to bear in mind that a lot of exchanges don't even share the same connectivity technology. I mean, some will use fix, some will use REST. HFT is starting to show itself in this sector. And there are some very powerful exchanges now, institutional grade exchanges that, that we know about that are doing HFT trading. So that is changing. And I expect that to be a big change that we see this year as the technology gears up. But to understand why this is so different and why the development of this institutionalization is so incongruous in a way, we need to remember that crypto emerged retail. Crypto is the only asset class currently traded today that started out in retail. And the the assets that you and I dealt in back when we were in fine in traditional finance, I mean, they start with the institutions. They designed with rules and procedures in mind, with a certain rigor in mind, and then it trickles down to retail after it's had its trial run and the institutional scene. But crypto started out grassroots. It started out as an experiment, and it started out with some people who shared an ideology exchanging an asset that they didn't really know was going to go anywhere. And so the first exchanges that sprang up were bulletin boards, basically. I mean, they literally were bulletin boards. And then it got a bit more sophisticated as they started to get traction. But because it sprang up grassroots, there was never any game plan. There was never any design. There were never any rules. And nobody really thought about, hey, what if we connect with other exchanges? Because nobody really expected there to be that many exchanges back in the beginning. And when that started to become more of a liquid concept, when the exchanges started to actually make money, well, we know what happened with Mt. Gox. I mean, that owned, when 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 that crashed, it had 70% of the flow of Bitcoin. It had 70% market share. That is staggering in itself. And the fact that there was no governance even, no trail, no audit for something that was actually real money, that that is probably the same view, Ophelia. I mean, that just blows my mind since we come from traditional finance. That's unthinkable. But because it grew up retail, the infrastructure needed for high flow of funds and for the institutional interest that we think the sector probably needs, it just wasn't there. It's being tacked on on top. That's an entirely different approach to building a financial system. So do you think you see, aside from... You know, you're talking about exchanges and exchanges springing up. Um, you know, what what do you see and sort of the, the rules around exchanges and the way that these these platforms have been created? What do you see as the sort of other areas where, the, you know, this retail first um, history really shows in, let's call it uh, the market's infrastructure? That's a very good question. And there would be like 300 different answers, I think, probably because there's 300 different types of exchanges out there. The retail 
exchanges. I'm thinking of the likes of Coinbase, but obviously the ones in Asia are probably even bigger. They have a massification approach. They're very focused on smaller assets, perhaps. The institutional-grade exchanges, I'm thinking of the likes of ErasX and SeedCX that have sprung up fairly recently. They're more focused on the top-tier assets and getting liquidity rather than opportunity. I think perhaps they also very much show in how price discovery works in the crypto markets. I mean, price discovery for the readers who don't aren't familiar with the, the markets speak here because most, they say it's a very confusing term. It's not about finding out what the price is. It's about how the price information is disseminated across the market. How can you as a trader know that you are getting the best available price to you. It's not about value. It's not about determining what that price should be. It's about how the price moves through the market. And this ties into market philosophy. This ties into how do you even achieve a consensus of a value around an asset when we all know that not all the information is out there. That is that is a mind-blowingly fascinating concept, but that can, that's verging into philosophy. When it comes to price discovery in crypto markets, the way that the exchanges emerged in their little silos operating independently is there is no broker figure. In traditional markets, a retail investor would not go to an exchange to buy a stock of Apple or something like that. He or she would place the order with his or her broker, who would then route the order to the best price at the time. In crypto, that doesn't happen. In crypto, you work with Kraken or you work with Poloniex or you work with Coinbase. You have to fund your accounts at each of these individual exchanges, whether you're retail or whether you're institutional. This impedes price discovery. I mean, for instance, you want to buy Bitcoin, for instance, and you have an account at Kraken and you have funded your account at Kraken. You got money sitting there at Kraken waiting for the opportunity, but lo, a better price emerges on Coinbase. It's not easy for you to get your money over to Coinbase to then buy on Coinbase and Coinbase isn't going to give you credit. You can't say, I'll pay you at the end of the day. It doesn't work like that, delivery versus payment. So price discovery is a different thing in the crypto markets. You don't go for the best price. In traditional markets, you have to go for the best. Your broker has to, by law, go for the best price on your behalf. In crypto, you don't care so much because the cost of, ch- of moving your money over to a different exchange is just too much. I don't care if I'm not getting the best price. I'll take this one because my money's here. I know these guys. I trust them. That's a different concept. What do we even mean by best price in crypto? That's different from what we mean by best price in the traditional finance. I would agree with that. And I think you make a very there are sort of two really interesting points from a markets infrastructure perspective that you bring up. And I think one people, one people are maybe more familiar with and the second, probably not at all. Um, settlements and margin are non-existent in crypto. There's not yeah. really any. I mean, that's starting to change. It's, it's starting to change, but it's very thin still. And why is it very thin? Because it's very risky. I mean, we all know that crypto is extremely volatile compared to other assets. Are you really going to loan somebody money so that they can go long on your exchange when in the end of the day, maybe they are out a lot of money and so are you? Well, I think the, but I think the question here is it's not even margin in a go long in a long term setting. What I'm talking about is even so in traditional markets infrastructure, most things settle T plus two which means that people do not expect you to have cash on hand when you transact. Your broker doesn't expect you to have, you know, if you want to buy $100,000 of Apple shares, you don't actually need to have $100,000 in cash funded in your account at the moment in which you execute. That's a very good point. You can say we're executing now and then I'll pay you in two days. 
And the benefit yeah. of something like that is some of what you're talking about in terms of if my money's on Kraken or if it's on Coinbase, it, by the time you move your money, chances are that price will have moved again. Absolutely. And you raise another very good point is that something that doesn't exist, obviously, in traditional assets is the blockchain confirmation times. Let's say you want to sell your Bitcoin. And at the moment, it's held in your wallet on Coinbase. But Kraken has a better price. You can sell it for a better price on Kraken. But by the time you've moved your Bitcoin to Kraken, it could be 10 minutes, it could be an hour, depending on how the, the blockchain confirmations are going that particular day, the price will have moved and will probably have moved quite a lot given the volatility, relative volatility of the asset. And again, that is not something that traders are very comfortable with. No, it's not. And it typically means that you're looking at having to maintain. And I think this is a, a, sort of another point that you've touched on. You're talking about having to maintain assets on exchange in hot wallets, which means that your trust in the exchange as a custodian is actually an important conversation. Mm -hmm. New York Stock Exchange is a matching engine, right? It doesn't care if you, where your assets are. They could be at Morgan Stanley, they could be at UBS, they could be at Bank of America, they could be literally anywhere. And it doesn't matter from the New York Stock Exchange's perspective, right? It versus something like Kraken, yeah, totally. where the expectation is you, it, they act as a depository in some capacity as well. Yeah, and a depository for a bearer asset. This is also different. So if you're a custodian in traditional markets, somehow something happens, a hurricane hits New York, I mean, God, um, and they lose the records, it doesn't matter, you can get them back again. It's not a bearer asset. But if your Bitcoin gets hacked, your Bitcoin, sorry, the exchange wallet where your Bitcoin sell gets hacked, as we have seen has happened many times in the past, that then you, you've lost your Bitcoin. I mean, okay, there are many procedures in place today to one, make that a lot harder to do, and two, many exchanges will find a way to make you whole again, but it's still a very big risk. And again, for retail investors, fine, maybe we can understand that and we accept that risk, but an institution can't. I mean, they cannot allow that kind of risk because it's not their money. And also an institution can't, going back to your point earlier about funding the accounts, institution can't leave cash lying around without it earning some kind of return. He's not doing his job if, if, that, if he's doing that. So, Will we start to see exchanges perhaps offering interest on the fiat deposits that we leave with them, in which case maybe that changes the game a bit? Maybe that means it's actually in our interest to leave cash on various accounts and various exchanges because there's not a lot of return coming on cash holdings outside anyway. Or maybe, as we're starting to see, maybe new types of players will emerge in the sector, the prime brokers that the sector hasn't really had up to now. Okay, there are some players in the market now that are filling that role. I'm thinking of S-Fox and thinking of Tegomi. But again, they're young, they're new. It's not an established practice yet. Will it become an established practice? Will we see centralization and middlemen emerge in the sector that was designed to avoid that? So I think there's another model to that, right? There's the traditional market maker model, which can work, and the OTC corollary to that, right? So, you know, we, we at Amun are obviously... You know, we're an institutional buyer of crypto. We do quite a lot in crypto, obviously, and we move a lot of physical assets. And, and we need liquidity in those markets, both in sort of the, what we'd consider the secondary markets for our products on six, but as well as in primary markets. So, you know, we need to issue more product. We need to go buy some Bitcoin. How do we do that? Um, and one of the things that we think about a lot is these issues. It becomes operationally very, very challenging um, if you need to maintain stores. And so one of the things we think about a lot is OTC. And how do you trade OTC and who are the big players there? And and you're talking about some of the newer players, but you also have some of the legacy folks that are doing, um, they're doing quite a bit of work there. Um, I'm thinking, you know, DRW and Cumberland. I mean, that's a huge 
trading shop out of Chicago. They've traded everything. They now also do crypto OTC. Um, Flow Traders is another example of that. They are one of the largest market makers in the world, and they do they have a crypto desk where you can trade. Um, and that's a very sort of, I think, a different type of infrastructure um, than I think maybe what most retail thinks of when they're transacting. And it certainly gives you more of that traditional markets infrastructure applied to the space to make it to some degree more compatible without getting into sort of exchanges as custodians. Um, and I think the other point you made, which I would love to comment on, is the um, your point about exchanges beginning to provide returns on deposits effectively means that they need to make money in some way off of those deposits. The likely way to do that is rehypothecating, right? But rehypothecating a bearer asset, and, mm. and sorry for people who maybe don't know this, rehypothecating means if you have an asset on deposit, you're able to then loan that out. It's similar to what banks do, right? So you give a bank a dollar, they probably lend that out four, five, six, seven times on the back end to other people. And that's how you know the railroad in your town gets built and whatever else. Um, and they would need to do something similar. Yeah, if they start doing that with something like Bitcoin, say, rehypothecation, then what does that do to the supply cap? Well, it starts to look more like M2 money supply, right? And, and we talk about this. If this is currency, there's both yeah. you both have an M1 and an M2 money supply, right? And, and this is sort of beyond a, a market infrastructure conversation. But I think that it, well, yes and no, right? Because at the end of the day, if the expectation is that you need these assets to start performing more like traditional infrastructure, there's a very real reason why banks lend out assets. It's because that's how they make money on deposits. Um, and I think you do see that. I think you will yeah. see that. Um, and I think this is derivatives in some respect have already done that, right? Levered derivatives, um, short product. You're already getting away from this trap. The only thing that you're able to do differently, I think, versus maybe traditional infrastructure is that these lenders don't have any caps on what they're actually able to provide, right? So, for example, banks have limits on how much mm. they're allowed to rehypothecate. Currently, there's no limit on that in crypto, right? That's true. And there aren't no rules yet. You're right. Do you think there will be any time in the near future? Do you think that putting limits on these exchanges that are starting to act more like banks will be something the regulators will turn to? Um, honestly, I, I, I think it's way too soon to tell. And I think it's too soon to tell whether or not the exchanges choose to go that route, right? It opens them up to a whole other set of things. But I think, Leonard, do you have something to add to this? Yeah. So, so one thing I wanted to bring up, especially as someone that, you know, undoubtedly has a lot less experience in traditional finance than everyone else in the call. So one kind of theme I've gotten from the discussions thus far, especially as soon as I heard rehypothecation mentioned, is that in, <laughs> in many ways, the trend of the crypto's market structure is over time, as one would expect, to becoming more similar to that of other asset classes. And it's quite interesting to think about to what extent, well, you know, in 20 years, the microstructure for crypto be, you know, more or less identical to that of, you know, securities or other gold or, or other commodities such as gold. And, you know, if at some point that comes relatively at odds with a lot of the ethos behind crypto, which, you know, in 2009, a lot of people saw Bitcoin as a alternative way to create money and create finance. But some of these more recent developments to an outsider may seem like totally antithetical to that. So I guess it's more of a philosophical question, but I'll be interested if any of you guys have any thoughts on that. It's really hard to get away from philosophy when you're talking about crypto and money and finance and capital and all that. Do you find the same, Ophelia? Yes. <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> the short answer. 
And we haven't we haven't even touched on custody yet, which is a big thing that's different in crypto as in traditional. What even is custody when it comes to bearer assets? Okay, we understand that Bitcoin, as Lundry just said, was emerged to not need middlemen. It, it's uh, all about self-custody. You you know, the, remember, do you remember back in the very beginning, that slogan that we always to repeat, you are your own bank with Bitcoin? Well, it's not turning out that way. I mean, a lot of us retail investors do keep our tokens on exchanges simply because it's so much more convenient. And I got to be honest with you, I trust a reputable exchange more than I would trust myself to not lose my keys. This is an embarrassing confession to make on the air, I know. But uh, along with me, a lot of other institutions, again, what are they going to do when it comes to custodying the assets that they're holding on behalf of their clients? But with a bearer asset, custody implies ownership. If I'm going to give a custodian my private keys or access to my private keys, even then that changes the whole notion of ownership. So you've got custodians that actually are owners of these assets, and that's not what custodians are supposed to do. It's an entirely different proposition. Well, I would maybe just play devil's advocate here, because I do agree with you, um, from a market, so custody. I think it's important to comment a little bit on how custody integrates with markets infrastructure, right? But I think largely the issues mm-hmm. with custody and markets infrastructure are the question of how separate these are really going to be in this space. And I think you know you mentioned you know holding things on exchange that you know is I think a lot of people do that. I think there are security questions about whether or not that's the right thing to do. Um, but I also think there's just practicalities, right? If you're going to be an active trader in anything, you basically don't have another option from a custody perspective. And I think yeah. when you think about bearer assets, I mean, look, Bitcoin is not the only bearer asset, right? It's not things like gold, things like dollars. There, there are other things that are bearer, bearer assets. And I think one of the things that's important to think about when we talk about custody in this context is you, to some degree, need people to specialize, right? And I think people take for granted, be your own bank sounds great um, and makes an enormous amount of sense under certain contexts. But banks actually do a lot more work than most people realize. Settlements are really complicated. Like buying an Apple share, if you have a Charles Schwab account, is super easy for you, right? It's like three buttons that you click and poof, you have an Apple share, but you actually don't, right? There's a bunch of people doing a bunch of stuff on the back end of that to make that work. Most of that's not particularly well automated, right? And at Charles Schwab and whoever their actual custody bank is, but whatever, um, do an enormous volume of work. And so the question also becomes, if you're going to be your own bank, how comfortable are you with being your own markets infrastructure? And that's part of what we're talking about, right? (laughs) But that's part of what we're talking about. We're talking about settlement slags. We're talking about settlements delays, margin. We're talking about connectivity and fix versus rest versus, you know, is there a place for high frequency traders in this market? All of these elements come together where at the end of the day, it it is a retail market first, but we make a decision as to whether or not that retail, we're comfortable as a retail market saying, okay, well, you're not only going to be your own bank, but you're going to be your own markets infrastructure. And I think that's the trickier part. Because nobody actually wants to deal with settlements and clearing. Nobody actually wants to deal with custody. They just want to transact. Yeah, but I imagine the, the original crypto um, enthusiasts, I'll use that word, the original crypto enthusiasts, the retail market that emerged back you know, 10, 10 years ago now, they didn't see this market structure as being an issue because you send your money in, you get your Bitcoin, you're done. You just have to remember where you've put the pen drive, where you keep the password. But today with institutions, you're quite right. They're, they don't want to work like that. They need that back office support. They need that markets infrastructure, not just because it's convenient and because it's safer. First of all, markets infrastructure is generally not a fund manager's 
job. They focus on their specialization, as you said. And also in some cases, in some jurisdictions, and you know so much more about this than I do, by law, they have certain checks and balances that they need to enact. They have compliance requirements. They have a lot of hoops to jump through. They can't just you know, download everything onto a pen drive and shove it in the desk drawer. I, yes, that's certainly part of it. Um, like needing qualified custodians, needing things like that is, is certainly something that you know, we at Moon have dealt with. Um, but one of the things that I would add as a nuance to what you're saying is that I actually think retail doesn't want to do their own back office either. Well, speaking as a retail investor myself, I totally agree with you. But um, some of my colleagues do insist on this whole, you know, um, hold your own keys kind of thing. But I think you're right. It does take a certain mentality and a certain type of determination. My mother, for instance, would not want to do that. And so when we're talking about this getting into mainstream hands, I think we have to be fairly realistic. And I think maybe also, it depends on what your use case is, right? If you're buying and holding Bitcoin on a flash drive, great. If you want to hold your life savings in Bitcoin on a flash drive, great. If you're talking about putting in trading strategies and managing your portfolio in the same way people pick stocks, that's a completely different conversation, right? Even if you want to do things like use Bitcoin to pay for stuff, right? Um, You want that infrastructure to be easy. The the example we use a lot, and I think it's actually come up on this podcast before, is you take your credit card and you go to an ATM and you put in your PIN and it gives you money. You have a really seamless user experience, right? You give them a bunch of codes, you get money, the entire thing takes five minutes, and then you don't think about it again. You don't think about the fact that you just took your money out of Santander, but your bank account's a chase. So how is that working, actually? There's a bunch of people doing a bunch of stuff that makes that happen. And most people have no idea what that is. It doesn't matter because it's not relevant to them. And I think to some degree, we have a similar issue here, but on a markets infrastructure basis, right? It's not just about payments. It's also about saying, hey, you want to trade, you have a similar issue. I love that Douglas Adams quote, and if you know, people keep talking about technology, but all we want is stuff that works. Exactly. And I think the question about markets infrastructure comes down to, I think both retail and institutionals just want stuff that works. And so... Yeah. Is, is markets infrastructure is markets infrastructure one of these things whereby you only think about it when it's not working? One hundred percent. One hundred percent. You only think about it when it doesn't work. And we and we I think we've all we've all seen. I mean, certainly ten just over ten years ago, and on several occasions since then, there are many occasions when it doesn't work as we expected it to. And coincidentally, Bitcoin emerged at the same time. So coincidentally, we had a glimpse of how it could be other, and yet we do seem to, as you've hinted several times, we do seem to be converging on a similar structure. You were talking earlier about the how you use um, DRW and Cumberland and flow and how those those platforms are familiar to traditional traders and they're familiar because they're using very similar methods of trading that they've always done and this brings to mind that if we're going to court the institutional funds that we hope come into the sector not just for valuation purposes but also for the funding that will then flow into projects etc cetera, etc cetera, then maybe we do just to get this off the ground or get this into a broader a broader audience as it were um, we do need to think about changing the structure to become more institutional to become more centralized to maybe head in the direction of being in a point where we might end up replicating the same weaknesses that we've had in traditional markets. What do you think about that? I think we need some of that infrastructure, but I will tell you, so I, part of my job is to deal with settlements, right? 
That is part of what my team does. That's part of what we have to do as an issuer of an ATP. Settlements actually matter in my world in some way um, and actually matter tremendously. And I will tell you, um, crypto infrastructure in the end is better. Does that make sense? Like it is a lot easier to settle mm-hmm. trades not using Swift. Swift is terrible, right? Interesting. The wire transfer cutoff, are you going to be able to do both sides of the trade same day? Is your DVP actually going to function correctly? Are the accounts going to refresh at the right time? Is the traditional banking partner going to update their statements at the right time? Settlements lags are a huge problem and massively costly to people, basically to the institutions that are trading, to individuals. Um, And crypto makes that a lot easier because you do have, you know, we talk about 10 minutes of latency but not um, like you're not talking about days. And I think we forget that in the traditional markets, you are literally talking about days of latency. That's a very good point. I mean, 10 minutes seems like an eternity to us. And you're quite right. I mean, since when is 10 minutes a long time when it comes to settlement? It's not. Most settlement in traditional markets is T plus two. There are certain types of complex products that settle significantly longer than that. And so the issues yeah. you have is, okay, how do you deal with this? How do you actually deal with um, the losses associated with that? And, and a lot of that's made up with by basically doing synthetic exposure and assuming the things that are in settlement are settled, right? But they're Interesting. not. Is, how automated is crypto settlement compared to traditional settlement? So I don't think it's a question of automation because neither is automated. None of hmm. this is really that automated, right? DVP is to some degree automated in the traditional world wire transfers are not automated, right? You use like a lot, like an individual needs to log into a banking portal. Maybe you can, like in the last few years, you're starting to see like API integrations that would allow you to do that. But like that's, um, I think what we don't think about is if I need to get money from A to B and then from B to C in a single day, how do you do that? Like tri-party mm-hmm. settlement is really difficult in traditional environments, right? What impact do you think stable coins are going to have on settlement going forward in crypto and, and also going forward in traditional capital markets? Do you see it spilling over into that? Absolutely. So my, my view is that eventually you don't end up, I mean, this is maybe somewhat controversial. I actually think you see convergence between traditional capital markets infrastructure and crypto slash blockchain based capital markets infrastructure because at the end of the day it is faster right it's a lot easier to settle on a stable coin than it is to try to move dollars via swift that's the whole concept behind xrp right fine great but if you can actually say okay forget that let's just do let's just do a a stable coin i think it's it's the concept behind what jpm was trying to do with jpm coin right and that was a long time ago we haven't heard much about it but that, that was one of the concepts, right, is to actually allow their clients to settle more quickly. Do you think the uh, increasing volume around the conversation around uh, central bank digital currencies will impact asset settlement, traditional and crypto at some stage? I think it's a whole the same thing, right, at the end of the day. Like, we can talk about a government-backed stablecoin versus a non-government. It doesn't really matter, right? At the end of the day, it's just something that's not moving in value Like there's, in some way you have a base currency you can transact and denominate other things in. That's really all that matters at the end of the day when you think about settlements, right? You agree to swap X for Y. And as long as X and Y both exist, that's fine. I don't think it actually matters what X and Y are, but I think by putting things like the dollar into an environment where they can settle in a few minutes, Mm -hmm. you have a very wide range of things you can do in settlement. And I think that T plus two construct will likely go away on the back of this. 
you can then instantaneously the settle. And that's huge. Yeah. And the impact on liquidity. I mean, just getting the money moving faster rather than sitting there in limbo. Massive changes. And I think that the changes associated with that type of markets infrastructure, I think while crypto may get some of the legacy problems, absolutely. Things like empty money supply and rehypothecation and questions about stability associated with that, things you know, elements of, um, you know, HFT and whether or not this is really going to be democratic in the long run, um, issues around liquidity. I think crypto markets will eventually inherit some of these issues that I think that's just going to happen. But I think at the same time, traditional markets are going to inherit some of the benefits of blockchain tech and benefits of how crypto settles, which is actually much more efficient. And isn't it, I mean, seriously, how often do we, and I say we collectively, get the chance to watch a birth of an entirely new type of capital markets that ends up influencing the old one? I think uh, I think that's a fascinating question. I mean, I, we, just to point to something historical and, and maybe a sort of as a, a fun place to end, I mean, this is to some degree very similar to the electronification of trading and what happened with NASDAQ coming onto the scene, right? Yes. I think we're not that yeah. far away from that. That's a great example because I, I talk to a lot of bankers as I know you do as well. And like here often, banking won't change. Banking just won't change. They don't do that. And I say, but they did. They've done it several times. In fact, banking does nothing but change. And you're telling me it's not going to? I think that's uh, somewhat uh, focusing on the extremely short term and missing the bigger picture. Yeah. And I think on that note, perhaps this is a perfect place to wrap up. We kind of started the conversation talking about some of the overlaps between the market the market microstructure of traditional finance and crypto and talking about how over time the trends seem to be that various aspects and various agents within crypto starting to replicate or look a lot more similar to that of what we see in other asset classes. And at the end of the conversation, we've kind of talked about how many aspects of the digital asset space, especially around stable coins, may in fact spill over into, tra into traditional finance and you know, innovate over there. And it's quite interesting to look mm. at the dichotomy uh, or the balance between those two. And I think there's probably no better position to be in as, you know, participants within the industry to see something as exciting as this happen. So I think on that note, thank you, Noel, for being a part of this conversation. I think there's probably nothing else like this around talking around this topic within the space right now. And I think it'll be a massive value add. And thank you to Ophelia and Laurent for also stepping into this conversation and thank you to the listener and we'll be back next time with the next state of crypto podcast episode thank you so much lonray it's been fun this was it from the immune team thanks for listening and if you have any questions or would like to see your topic on our next episode reach out to us on twitter or linkedin we'll see you next week